What's up, everyone? This is The Road to the Show. I am Patrick Jones, and on this episode, we have Dan Zimborski. Dan is an ESPN baseball analyst, and he's the creator of the Zips Projection System. We go over the possible candidates for the Red Sox managerial position, Cubs Nationals series, uh, Yankees-Indians. We even get a little bit into sabermetrics, something that Dan has a background in, and it's pretty interesting to see how he is able to project players using his Zips projection system. And I really think you guys are going to enjoy this because sabermetrics is something that is already implemented pretty much with every organization, and it's only going to get implemented more and more as the years come on. So it's something that I'm definitely curious about, and I think that any fan of baseball should be. So I think everyone will enjoy enjoy this episode. And without further ado, Dan Zimborski. Welcome into the Road to the Show. I am Patrick Jones, and I am joined today by ESPN baseball analyst and creator of Zip's projection system, Dan Zimborski. Dan, thanks for coming on in, man. Hey, Patrick. How's it going today? Awesome, awesome. Cubs and Nationals last night. Um, What did you make of the whole Strasburg dilemma? Well, uh, I I think somehow his changeup is powered by mold spores because, you know, the whole (laughs) thing was, is he good at pitch, is he not? Well, he, I mean, he not only pitched, but his changeup, you know, fooled most of the team. They looked, they looked pretty bad trying to flail against it. Uh, Addison Russell had an at-bat where I think he pretty much swung at everything and missed everything except for, like, a foul ball. Uh, that was one of the better Strasburg performances I've seen. He's having a big postseason, and the whole sickness, I, I can't call it a scandal, but the whole buzz has kind of just made that story bigger. So it was, it was cool to see Strasburg uh, pitch so well. I don't think that national fans were as, I mean, uh, Cubs fans were as pleased with that, but I'm an Orioles fan, so I'm not that unhappy. Do you, do you think that the Nationals, or the Cubs, uh, I should say, are going to go, uh, continue to go after Harper because he hasn't been, you know, he's still not fully back to himself yet? Or do you think um, they're going to, you know, pitch around him to get to Zimmerman? I, I think you have to be very careful when you approach Bryce Harper. Uh, you, you look at Jake Arrieta uh, when when uh, there was uh, who was that Trey Turner was on third base and Arrieta was nibbling most of the night a little more than he was that he than he usually does but he was very careful with Harper and I think that was the right approach because Harper even when he hasn't been completely healthy at any time he's the most dangerous hitter in the lineup uh, yeah Dan Murphy had a great year but Harper is the better hitter uh, Zimmerman has been off and on all year and. But when you, when you go against Bryce Harper, you always have to keep in mind that he can turn the game around with one swing of the bat very quickly. Do you think that Jason Wirtz should still be in the two-hole? Not really. I mean, batting order doesn't make that much of a difference. But the truth about Jason Wirtz is he, that he hasn't really hit well for a long time now. Um, I think his last good offensive season was 2014. He's uh, 38 now. I... I even if batting order doesn't make a huge deal, uh, I, I think that you have to at least go with your best batting order. I know Dusty's like, well, that was our best lineup, but that's a little bit of, of a weird input there because, I mean, that's a lot of that is coincidence. I mean, the Angels can say, hey, our best stretch of the season was without Mike Trout, so Mike Trout isn't good, but that would be a ridiculous thing to conclude. Uh, 
in the end, it probably won't make the difference between winning and losing, but I think you have to gain any advantage you can. And if you have Worth in the lineup, you have to make sure you give him as few at-bats as possible because he's just not a feared hitter anymore. I want, if I'm an opposing pitcher, I'd be much happier facing Jason Worth than Anthony Rendon. Uh, so I'm, I'm not a fan of him in the two-hole. Um, it seems like the sabermetrics, they say, you know, always bat your best hitter, or from what I've heard, bat your best hitter in the two-hole uh, do you agree with that method, and should Harper be in the two-hole then? Well, you, well, the thing about optimization is that most of the logical lineups make sense. Uh, when I talk about Jason Worth not being in the two-hole instead of Rendon, uh, I, I'm talking about, you know, because there's a pretty large difference between them. But when you talk about that, like, when you have most of the good guys at the top and most of the lesser guys at the bottom – then at that point, you say, well, what makes the guy comfortable? I do think that you should try to get the best guy in the two-hole uh, and perhaps do a, kind of a low on-base slugger and, uh, that you, if you happen to have one and uh, hitting third, simply because the, the third spot in the batting order leads off the fewest innings of any batting order spot. But again, they don't make that big of a difference. And so when you're talking very marginal gains, then you can justify in saying if the player is comfortable hitting second or leading off or hitting cleanup. Uh, it, it's just when there's a larger difference, like between Jason Worth and Rendon, or 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 a number of comparisons. Uh, I, I think of the Royals putting Alcides Escobar at the top of the lineup for most of the season, even though it was clear that he should not have been leading off. Uh, so I don't I don't sweat the small things. Uh, the larger things, those are the ones you have to worry about. Yeah, I I definitely understand that. Who do you like tonight for the Nationals and um, Cubs? Uh, I I. I think I'm going to take the Nationals, but it's close. Uh, the Cubs, I mean, they underperformed a lot of the season, but I think the Nationals are a better team right now. Uh, I guess what it comes down to is the Nationals, as, as we talk, they haven't announced their starter yet. If it's Gonzalez, I, I, I think the Nationals are favored. But if it's Rourke, I, I think the Cubs might be favored. But I don't know who they're going to go with. Uh, so we'll see, I guess. Dusty's a pretty old school manager. What do you think of some of the things that he does? He has done throughout the season with the team. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm a long term Dusty complainer because, uh, but I but I think the thing with Dusty Baker is he has to be on the right kind of team. He gets a lot of results out of veteran teams that have most of the spots uh, pretty much claimed, where there's not a lot of give and take in some of the decisions. Like like with the Nets, you knew who the pretty much every starting position player was going to be entering the season. And I think that's the kind of atmosphere that Dusty Baker does well in because he does work well with, with veteran players. And the Nationals were a team that was like, you know, killing each other, killing the manager uh, when you look at the Matt Williams stint. So I think Dusty Baker is a really good manager for the Washington Nationals. But if you would talk, say, like a younger team that needs more creative usage, I can't imagine Dusty Baker managing the Cubs right now. I can't see him juggling Javier Baez and Ben Zobrist and and working Ian Happ into the lineup. I can't see him doing any of that. Uh, I can't see him with creative bullpen usage. So as long as it's in Dusty Baker's wheelhouse, which I think the Nats are, he's, he's a fine manager. Uh, I think if the Nats ever get to a point where they start rebuilding, say, after next few years after maybe Harper moves on, then I think you, you don't really want Baker for the next, next phase of the Nationals' existence. Uh, but right now, I think he's a good manager. Yeah, there's going to be some in-game decisions, but it's that's you, you kind of take that with the dust. Why do the same managers just keep rotating throughout Major League Baseball? Well, there's also a safety factor because 
one thing that people always forget is that people managing teams, they're also concerned about, you know, their own career, their own jobs. And it's hard to really get in trouble for doing something that's very conventional. When you just give a, when you, when you call a play, when you make a player a closer and they're an experienced closer and use them in a traditional role, if they fail, like, yeah, you, you tried, but when you try to think out the box, outside the box, you, you, you sometimes get punished by it. I remember when Atlanta, when Boston, excuse me, tried to do kind of a closer by committee in the early days of Bill James. They just got raked in the press about how, because it wasn't working for a while. Uh, I, I think that there's a general safety, just a general conservatism, really, in all sports management. There's a lot of money involved. People are risk-averse. And when you... And even if you don't think, say, uh, Brad Ausmus is a great general, ma- um, great manager, I certainly don't. There's kind of, you, you know what to expect from him. It's not like he's, he's a known quantity. He's not the worst manager ever. So you, you sometimes see why these, why these managers get recycled sometimes. Who do you have being the next Red Sox manager? Do you have uh, Brad being there? I actually have absolutely no idea. Uh, uh, you really have to say and wait the process. The, the firing was a surprise. Uh, Dombrowski has kept it, the actual reasons very close to his vest. Uh, so I'm really not sure what the Red Sox are going to do here. I would probably expect him to go to more of a veteran role. Uh, Dombrowski is not as aggressive as the previous uh, um, general manager, the presidents have been. Uh, he's, he's more of a traditionalist. I mean, he's not like a 1940s traditionalist. He does believe in analytics, but he he tends to go the safe route. And I think the Red Sox will probably get a manager that has managed before in the majors. Did you did you hear anything as to why um, uh, Farrell ended up getting fired up there? Oh, I I I mean, there's always some rumors that they weren't getting along, but the specifics uh, I I haven't heard. I don't know if anyone has uh, because you know. They don't want to tell people in the press things that go on there. Uh, but the general buzz was that they weren't getting along, and there were some communication issues, especially with some of the player issues, like how Eckersley was treated this year. Uh, and there was kind of the feeling that, that Farrell had maybe lost the team and wasn't seeing eye-to-eye with Dombrowski. Because you have to remember uh, about John Farrell is that he wasn't Dombrowski's guy. He was there before before. Uh, the, the, the whole regime was changed. So it was kind of a holdover to the previous administration, and that, that gives him not a lot of rope. So when the Red Sox disappointed in the playoffs, you, you can see how that happened. So it's one of those things maybe we'll someday find out like the whole story, but I'm not really counting on it. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the Red Sox, someone who's pretty close from where, where we are right now, Andrew Benatendi, where do you project him uh, to be? Uh, do you project him to be a star in the next few years? Uh, yeah, I project him as a minor star. Not, I shouldn't say minor star. I, 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 the Zips projections do have him in the three to four win range every year. Uh, he's, a, he's a dependable player. It doesn't see him as really being an MVP type, uh, but he, he, he should be an all-star uh, for, for quite a while, most, most of his prime likely. Yankees-Indians last night. Yankees ended up pulling it out. Um, do you think that the Reds should have given up on D.D. Gregorius when they did? Oh, well, that, well, that's always second-guessing, I guess. I mean, sometimes it's appropriate, but he's really improved to a degree that I don't think a lot of people saw. Uh, I mean, it looked like he was 
he never had a great approach at the plate. It looked like he was going to max out at, you know, maybe 10 home runs. But, of course, he had 20 in 2016 and then 25 this year. Uh, so uh, while it didn't work out for the Reds, because, like, I mean, uh, who did they even get? I'm trying to remember. It was that big three-way. They, oh, they got Chu and I don't remember who else. But, but anyway, uh, I guess it is a little disappointing for the Reds. But, you know, I, I don't think it was explicitly a bad trade or anything. Uh, and, of course, the Yankees get credit for sticking with him, seeing what he could do. Uh, I mean, he's he's not a superstar, but he's a really good player. He's he's never going to be a high on-base percentage guy. But if he hits 20, 25 home runs a year and, and, and plays respectable defense at short, there's nothing wrong with that. Do you think that Aaron Judge will be able to come out of his, I don't want to say slump, but I guess it is really a slump, but why has he been so inconsistent throughout the entire season? It seems like he went through a month stretch where he was just automatic out, but yet at the end of the year, he's still hitting 284, 52 home runs. Yeah, well, I mean, he can be exploited at times, uh, but you, you look at slumps, and going into his two-home run game, Didi Gregorius was in a slump. He was, I think, one for the series. Uh, so that, that could turn around pretty quickly. Uh, Judge, he's he's never going to be a scientific player, a uh, scientific hitter. He's not going to be Ted Williams up there. Uh, and I think sometimes he will have these funks. And I think he those are things you have to work out when you're in the majors. Uh, it's not about whether you slump because you're going to slump. It's whether how you come out of it. And he came out of his last slump with the public eye on him pretty well. People were all like, oh, he's been terrible since the All-Star break. He's, he's Kevin Moss. And he, he came out of that. And he's had a pretty bad postseason, but it's only been uh, six games. And I'm not going to fault anyone for what they do in six games. Where do you project him in the future? Uh, I think he's going to be one of the elite power hitters in baseball for a long time. I think he's generally going to be just below MVP quality. Uh, I know Baseball Reference has him with like eight wins this season. That's probably a little aggressive uh, for a player that isn't perfect, does have some holes in his offensive game. Uh, I, I do think he'll be a four, five, six win player pretty regularly, uh, and and definitely win lead the league in bat, in home runs uh, a, f- a few more times. I'm so fascinated with the uh, sabermetrics and, and analytics. Um, it seems that a lot of old school type of players are. You think that they're intimidated by all the numbers, and that's why they just stick to the batting average and home runs. Well, I think what it comes down to is that people work best with things they're familiar with uh and and they have their experience and sometimes new experiences i mean a lot of players do change and and do but some players just aren't or some executives just aren't as comfortable with that uh i know i i can say that but i imagine what if something what if we're talking about something else in 30 years i'll probably be more comfortable with the old numbers i know i know i still use ops uh, it's not the best statistic in the world. I use it because it's easy to explain and it's it's well established. Uh, but everybody has kind of a comfort level. Uh, so I, I mean, I try to take it one argument at a time and try to get people too mad at me. What is the most important stat in your opinion? Is it OPS? Uh, well, it, it, it's a very loaded question because it always depends on what you're looking at. If you're looking at very general comparisons, the war stats are really good. But they, you do have to know what worst stats do not do. They're not, they, they're, they do have error ranges, especially because of the defense being included. Uh, I, I look at sabermetrics and different stats as tools. They each do a different purpose, and they each have something you should use them for. Uh, a hammer is good for driving a nail, 
but a hammer is not good for fixing a window, I don't think. I'm, I've never fixed a window, but I mean, you, you get the idea. I, I, I think rather than focusing on what stat is better than what, I think it's more important to focus on what this particular stat tells us and what this particular stat doesn't. And when, and when you know what you don't know, then, then, you're, then you're handling things in kind of a responsible manner. So what do you think that the, the average fan could do to learn like, how these stats work? Is there a specific website to go to, or where, how, how would a specific fan learn how, how are these uh, statistics work? Well, there's, there's stuff all over the web. There's books. Uh, you can read Keith Law's book. You know, sites like Fangrass, Baseball Prospectus. I think a lot of people will just pick it up just as they need to learn things. Because as I say, sabermetrics are tools, and sometimes people are curious about things. Like, why are people so hard on Matt Kemp? And not every fan is going to be into the numbers and the deeper things. Some guys just want to go watch a game, have some beers. I like to do that, too. Uh, it, it, I, I think that when people want knowledge, then they'll seek out that knowledge. And there's a lot of places to get it. Uh, I don't think you want to get it from one source. You don't really need sabermetrics classes or anything. I think just experiencing the information as you're curious about things. Because uh, James, Bill James coined sabermetrics. The, the meaning is objective knowledge about baseball. And that, that covers a, a wide range of things. It's not just, say, war or OPS. Uh, I think of sabermetrics more as kind of a style of learning. It's just being intellectually curious about the things you see and then trying to find information about the things you see to you know, satisfy your curiosity. Is Keith Law one of the leading experts, would you say, in sabermetrics since he just has a book that came out not that long ago? Well, I'm biased. Cause I, I go way back with Keith Law. We used to uh, – a lot of the sabermetrics guys you still see, especially the older ones, uh, I hate to say older one for myself, but I am pushing 40 now. Uh, we, all, we all kind of hung out in the same place in the 90s uh, called Usenet. I don't know if you're familiar with Usenet. Uh, it kind of died out about 15 years ago, so a lot of people aren't familiar with it. But that, that, that's where Sabermetrics was kind of on the internet in the 90s. It was, it was people like me and Keith Law and Keith Wilner of the Indians, Sean Foreman of Baseball Reference, Forrest McCracken, uh, Christina Carl. Uh, all, all these, all these people that a lot of them you still see around, where we argued about baseball. Uh, so Keith, Keith had the same battles that I did uh, in the last twenty years. I mean, we've all mellowed a bit. In the early days, we we're mostly being mean to AOL users and web TV users. Uh, but no, Keith knows what he's talking about. He's he's focused more on on, on scouting now. He he learned a lot. Uh, oh, who? Who did he learn under with the Blue Jays? I forget who it was now, uh, but but Keith does know his sabermetrics. I enjoy uh, following Keith on Twitter. I have for the past few years. He really, he's definitely opinionate, opinionated. He uh, he he likes his numbers. It seems like, and there's certain things you know. He he's one of those guys. I feel like he doesn't. He likes giving uh, new managers a chance, and it, I think he was kind of frustrating for him when Dusty Baker got hired for the Nationals. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, I don't remember his exact take on Dusty, but I can imagine that. I was, I mean, I'm opinionated as well, and I was, I probably wasn't the most, it wasn't the most popular opinion about Dusty Baker and the Nets, uh, because he wasn't really a great manager in some of his other spots. Uh, he, he didn't do a great job with the Cubs. Uh, there were, he was up and down before that. I, 
I, I was probably in the minority there with, with liking that signing. So he's, he's not that different than a lot of those of the stat guys. So speaking of uh, stat of, of statistics in general, um, since we have saver metrics available, should the MVP be like black and white in terms of who wins every year? Like should it even be a discussion since we have all these statistics? Well, it always it, it depends. Uh, we can use general me- general measures like WAR, but there are instances in which I mean WAR has larger error ranges than in other times. Uh, like when you look at Mike Trout. Um, when uh, he was going against Miguel Cabrera a few times, Trout's stats were at the level beyond Cabrera's that it, it wasn't really an issue. But when you're talking like this year, uh, Stanton versus Goldschmidt versus Nolan Arenado and Charlie Blackman, then it becomes much trickier. It's, it, war is not so accurate that you can say that the guy with the 7.1 war is better than the guy with the 6.9 war. So you have to argue it out. Uh, hopefully the writers will do an okay job. Uh, I know when I did my Cy Young ballot uh, for the NL this year, I, I spent a lot of time. I didn't just use war. I considered a lot of things, kind of the philosophy of excellence, how much to take into account playing time versus quantity of contribution, what effect do kind of win probability stats have on a measure like an MVP Cy Young versus a predictive type thing. Uh, so there, there are a lot of questions that go into it. I just think it's as long as you're arguing honestly and you're debating these things and you're going over the issues, it's hard to be that far wrong. Uh, I look at when you look at a bad MVP vote, you look at Dante Bichette, uh, who is second in the MVP. Uh, and I think he had like 1.0 war that season or 1.2 or something. Uh, those, those are probably clearly poor decisions. But I, I, I hope we keep doing better as writers. So is Joey Votto not in the conversation for NL MVP? Oh, uh, yeah, I should have included Votto. Yeah, he's, I think he's going to have a hard time because if, if some of the writers are willing to pick a player from a poor team, they're probably more likely to pick Stanton than Votto. Uh, Votto would have been on my ballot. I, I'm sorry I didn't mention him in my sentence before. Uh, I think the problem is you, you still have some writers that aren't as sabermetric as others. I'm obviously a very sabermetric type writer, so I, I love Votto, and some of the local coverage of him was pretty obnoxious because he was always dinged on for his lack of RBIs, which is a little silly to talk about in 2017. But still, for some writers, I don't think on-base percentage is that sexy. Uh, some, some writers will indefinitely say, oh, 36 home runs, 100 RBI, how can that be the MVP? Uh, and I don't want to pick out any names. Uh, there's only one writer I really feud with, so <laughs> I don't want to be that much of a jerk. But I, 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 don't, I think he's going to struggle because I, I, in, in the actual voting, uh, he's probably going to be like fourth or fifth, which is sad because he had a really awesome season, and he never gets the credit that he deserves. Are you allowed to tell us who you voted for for the NL and I, AL? No, we are sworn to secrecy until until after the vote is announced. Uh I actually spent seven hours on my ballot doing the Cy Young voting. First, I, I reduced all the candidates to about 15, well, exactly 15 Cy Young candidates. And then to myself, I wrote a 200-word argument for each of them. And then I narrowed it down to how much I convinced myself with my argument to myself, if that makes sense. Uh, so 
I'm not everyone will be happy. I'm sure with with the five pictures I picked, but I'm happy with it that I I put sufficient effort and work and thought into it. Uh, so we'll see. I in some way the angry people on Twitter are more fun than the nice people. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, though, to at least, you know, do your homework. It seems like some of the writers out there just, I mean, you see some of the votes in the past. It's like, I don't know if they're just picking players based on their favorite team or what. Yeah, that, that kind of thing bugs me, especially bugs when we get to the Hall of Fame votes. You, you see writers say, well, I just looked at him and saw if he felt like a Hall of Famer and I voted him or I didn't vote for him. It's like that, that is just so, so lazy. I think anything worth doing is worth doing right. Uh you're ostensibly you're voting for, say, the Hall of Fame because of your expertise, which means the players deserve more than your basic feelings. They deserve your thought. They deserve your effort. They deserve your analysis. Uh, so my, my feeling is that uh, the, 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 more, the more people take the award seriously, the more valuable the award is as an award. If, if nobody cares about it, it's not a great award. No one really cares about the Hank Aaron Award uh, simply because it's not done with any kind of deliberative process. I think if, if everybody took a lot of time to really think about their ballot, you'd have less like, you know, negative arguments about, about some of the things like, like oh, oh, he played for the Yankees and I thought he, had, he, thought he was clutch. I'm like, the, the award deserves more effort than that, let's just say. When you're going over voting for the NL or AL MVP award, do you go over your Zips projection system? Is that put into account? Well, I don't want to fault uh, players for for missing or not missing their projection. Uh, no, I, I mean I watch it over the course of the season, but really, the projections project the future, and awards are past looking. So I, I don't think projections would really factor into there. Just because I think a guy is going to say. Uh, have worse projections next season, like revert to the mean a bit, regression toward the mean. Uh, I, I, I don't want to take that into consideration with voting because let's say, just for the sake of argument, that Aaron Judge is a total fluke. I don't, I don't believe that, but it's just for the sake of argument. And let's say that next year he's going to hit 15 home runs and that, that this was just completely out of character. He'll never have a season anywhere close to this again. But the fact remains, in 2017, he actually hit those 52 home runs. He actually got those wins. So whatever he does in the future, I think it's just irrelevant for the voting uh, because he made those wins happen in 2017 no matter what the future comes, says. How did you come up with the Zips projection system to begin with? Well, I, in, in the 90s, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a chemist friend, he's actually on the board of Sabre right now, uh, Chris Dial. We used to talk about how we could do a very basic projection system that would do as well as the projection systems you see like in fantasy magazines. Uh, the web wasn't as big then because it was like 96, 97. So there weren't really any public projection systems other than the stuff that Baseball Prospectus was doing. Well, we never got back to that, but that's when I first had the idea of doing a projection system. Uh, 2001, 2002, I was blogging and I got the idea to, to revisit it and it even though the original idea was to do like a basic projection system, I did a lot more than that. Uh, Tom Tango with, uh, with Marcel kind of did the basic projection system. Uh, and at the time, uh, Voris McCracken's DIPS research was fairly new, so I wanted to implement you know, all the latest research into the projections. Uh, and over time, it evolved. I'm pretty happy with it. I didn't envision it becoming what it did. I just wanted you know, a basic projection system to help me 
blog about players better uh, to uh, make some Diamond Mine baseball players so that uh, I can play like the future in games. Uh, so it, it one thing led to another. It became a lot more complex than when I started. It became much more of a career thing than when I started. So I guess it's just how weird life is sometimes. <laughs> Do you ever wish that we were talking before we started recording, you know, you're saying you work from home. Uh, do you hope to someday be a baseball analyst on TV? Uh, I, I'm not sure about TV. Uh, I'm a little silly. I'm not sure I, it, it would work well. I do a lot of, you know, I write, I do a lot of radio. I, I guess I probably wouldn't, wouldn't mind. Um, I, I, I'd probably do a good job in the end once I got used to it. Uh, it's just never anything I really envisioned, but of course I never really envisioned getting this far either. Uh, maybe if I could stop with the asides and the tangents and the random pop culture references, <laughs> maybe I'll, I'd, I'd be suitable. If I can, maybe when I'm 50, I'll be able to be serious for more than like a minute. <laughs> Why do you think that there's so many uh, baseball analysts who, I mean, you look on Twitter and everyone's kind of ripping them for. Um, not really knowing what they're doing. Uh, why is it? Why do so many baseball analysts just not call the game the way most people want them to? Well, when you, when you look at, at at broadcasting, it's very mass market. And when you're talking about you know the stat the stat heavy guys, the people who are interested in the work I do, it it it's hard to have a mass market thing that's also going to meet their needs. Uh, I know Fox experimented with the little sabermetric alternate. Uh, broadcast track with Rob Nyer and those guys when they when when they when Fox still had you know writers uh, I guess that's a rant for another day but uh, I I think it's hard because it's still kind of a niche audience and so they so broadcasters tend to be as vanilla as possible but that is changing you do see more saber metrics start sneaking into podcasts especially local pod uh, local broadcasts. You see a lot of guys who are more sabermetric friendly and understand these things. Uh, it's just when you talk like the national that, that goes out to everybody, it's, it's still as vanilla as possible. But long term, I think that will change. Uh, the uh, sabermetrics being a mainstream thing is still fairly new. So it's it's not uh, it's it's not surprising if it hasn't reached like the the the, the farthest ends of the broadcast world yet. Uh, because people don't always remember, but in the 90s, we had to fight for peop- with people just to accept on-base percentage and slugging percentage. Th- there was resistance to that 20 years ago. Now, resistance to that today just sounds ridiculous, and we're talking about things like war. So we, we have advanced quite a bit, and I think the broadcast, as we go on, will eventually reflect that. If you're someone who's trying to get into broadcasting, do you, would you recommend learning everything about sabermetrics to try to get a head start from everybody else who's already there? Maybe not everything about sabermetrics, but I think it is you do have to speak that language. And I think increasingly teams and, and, and networks eventually will look for, for people that maybe not necessarily can, can run, you know, basic regression analysis or anything, but at least people who speak the language uh, of some of the, of the uh, research in baseball that has happened in the last 50 years, that, that know that on-base percentage and slugging percentage are the most valuable, understand what, what things like fielding independent pitching mean, what they don't mean. Uh, I, I think 
if you're going to be a broadcaster of baseball, you should at least be just at least familiar with some of the stuff because it will come up. Uh, when you were looking at the TBS broadcast yesterday when they tried to talk about StatCast, Ernie Johnson, <laughs> it sounded like he had never heard of StatCast before. Uh, Ron Darling just made kind of a comment where he was just silenced, and he says that, um, I forget who was up, had a, had a long trade of 30, a long angle of 33 degrees. Oh, it was Taylor. Then, Wasn't it Michael Taylor? Yeah, it was Michael Taylor, and he's like, 33 degrees, and it didn't come back. <laughs> and then there was just silence. Like, I think you want to be familiar with some of these things, because ML, MLB is pushing these things, too, because it adds interest to their sport. It adds all these things. Because statistics have power when they tell stories. And when you say someone had a long angle of something, it tells a story. You don't have to be the ballpark. You know the difference between a 40-degree angle and a 10-degree angle. Uh, it, imagine if we had like long angles from you know, the World Series in 1930. It, it would more come alive when you read about it because we don't have video of it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's a good idea to be familiar at least. Awesome stuff, Dan. Really appreciate it. One more question here. Who do you have winning the World Series this year? I still have the Dodgers. It, it's it's kind of weird that everyone has like seemed to like write off the Dodgers at various points. Uh, I guess, you know, because of that they lost 16 of 17 games. But, uh, but as I was saying at the time, if you lose 16 of 17 games and you still have the best record in baseball, you have to be an amazingly good team just to get to that point. They, I mean, they ended up with 104 wins despite that run. I mean, yeah, they didn't break the record, and that's a little disappointing, but it's still a really good team. Uh, they kind of showed what they could do in Arizona because Arizona's pitching did match up well against the Dodgers. They have a number of players who are serious Cy Young candidates, at least for the, I mean, for the back of the ballot. Uh, but, and the Dodgers dismantled them pretty convincingly. Uh, they, they are my favorite. I'm, I, I, I'm Right now, I'm thinking a Dodger-Astro World Series with the Dodgers just eking it out. Yasiel Puig has been out of the news a little bit this year. Um, has he turned the page, do you think, from a, just a mature standpoint and just an overall baseball player standpoint? Uh, I, I think so. It's good that he hasn't reached any headlines because the headlines with Puig always tend to be bad. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, there's always going to be those questions about his maturity level. But, uh, you know, I've, I've always had a, you know, a wide, a wide berth for him because, like, when, people, when he was coming up, I thought it was especially inexcusable. Like, at 22 and 23, people were complaining about him. And I, I think, when, I wasn't that mature when I was 22 or 23. Imagine coming over from a completely different culture uh, and, and adjusting. And I, I think maybe you're, someone's not going to be quite as mature as you'd hope. Uh, I mean, but now it's, it's his fifth year. He needs to settle down. And he did. And he had probably his best season since, uh, 2014. And most importantly, he, he didn't get into any hot water for anything this year. <laughs> I agree, Dan, I really appreciate you stopping by today. If I end up do becoming a broadcaster someday, I'll make sure to, uh, Give you a shout out when I start talking some analytics on TV. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me. It's always fun to talk shop. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>